Impact of Influence, the Murdoch Family Murders. This is the unfolding story of a powerful South Carolina family, the mysterious deaths they are linked to, and our quest to bring you the truth. Hello, friend. So grateful you're going to spend some time with us, Matt Harris and Seton Tucker here. And uh, there have been some moves made while we were away. We're glad you're back with us. You can find us on Facebook, Impact of Influence. This one will not be on the YouTube channel, but that will continue. And we're going to get to all of the things involving a potential new trial for Alec Murdoch based on jury tampering involving Becky Hill, the Carlton County Clerk of Courts. We'll do that. And when we get through that, you've got some kind of breaking stuff. Yes, Fitz News uh, just came out with a story where they talk about Becky Hill and her son, Jeffrey Hill's cell phones. Uh, there was a lot of switcheroo happening, <laughs> some missing cell phones, and some factory resets. So we will talk about that at the end of this episode. However, we are going to put it at the end, as you said. So what would you like to start off with, Seton? We now have a judge who has been assigned to oversee this evidentiary hearing, and that is former Chief Justice of the South Carolina Supreme Court, Jean Toll. She is a retired judge, but she has served on the judiciary as a senior judge since retiring, and she's 80 years old. And she was the first woman and the first Roman Catholic to serve as Chief Justice. There's been a lot of chatter about why she was chosen. You know, I wonder if she was chosen because she's not an active judge, so maybe she has more time. Well, she also is going to be ruling in favor or against different attorneys and uh, being caught up in the media spotlight and all that. And maybe if you're a younger person who's going to continue their career, yes. career, it could be all entwined in controversy and for or against a prosecutor or a defense attorney or whatever. She doesn't shy away from things. And I kind of wondered maybe she possibly asked to be in this role. Now, there's also been talk whether it's good or bad for the prosecution or defense. Um, she has ties to Dick Carpootland, but she was also recently photographed. I don't know where I saw that with Creighton Waters. Uh, so I, I don't course, know. She's, of course, anybody. We all know each other. It's going to be ties to Dick Carpootland. He's been in the Senate and he's been part of uh, Democratic politics and he's been part of South Carolina for since, uh, I guess, the 70s. Yes. You know, it just seems that she is an independent thinker. So I think she's going to rule the way she feels is the right thing to do. She's also in a place, like I said, career advancement is not on her radar. She's she's 80 and she's like, I'm going to do what I want. Yep. We'll see how it all plays out. So this is very quickly moving. We were, we were thinking, I think in our last episode, that this was going to take months, but she's already held status conference and actually scheduled a public status conference for January 16th, uh, which will be held at the Richland County Judicial Center. Richland County is where Columbia is, which is the state capital. Um, and in preparation for that, we have briefs that have been filed by the defense and also the state. And we'll get into those in a moment, but there's also uh, some other scheduling that's happened. On the calendar, we have the evidentiary hearing for the week of January 29th, much faster than I expected it to happen. Um, and they have allotted three days for this hearing. Now, we're not sure exactly what's going to happen during this. Uh, how's it going to look? We're not quite clear exactly how this will look. 
And Chief Justice Toll has said she's committed to making it available to the public. But you also have to protect the uh, identity of the jurors. And uh, in these motions that we're about to dive into, uh, both sides are setting forth arguments on how they would like this to look. It, it seems like they're all settling into, let's keep the jurors as anonymous as possible. Right. But it's also going to be what, who questions the jurors, whether it's going to be we don't know that yet, right? uh, the court, which would be Chief Justice Toll, or whether it would be the lawyers themselves. I, the people I've been talking to seem to think Toll's going to do the questioning. I, I think so. And actually, uh, in the motions filed by the defense and the state, they both are pretty much saying that. Accepting so. that. One of the things we should point out is that the Supreme Court of South Carolina took the case entirely out of Colleton County, which makes sense because that's where Becky Hill is the clerk of court still. And so Chief Justice Beatty issued that order that all documents, orders, and correspondence related to Murdoch motion for a new trial must be filed with a clerk of Supreme Court of South Carolina, and then they will take it, uh, get it to toll and uh, what will go on in Richland County. Right. Seems to make sense. All right. So let's dive into uh, the defendant's pre-hearing brief uh, regarding the motion for a new trial. They argue that Mr. Murdoch does not need to show actual bias on the part of any juror to obtain a new trial. They're saying that because of the nature of these allegations, it doesn't matter whether it affected the outcome of the verdict. This is what both sides are going to be have going on. The defense is going to say, as long as we can show that Becky Hill said things that were inappropriate, that might have swayed somebody, that's good enough. The, 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 the prosecution side is going to say, no, 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 no. Those jurors have to say, because of what she said, that's why we said guilty. Right. Now, she can... Talk to, obviously, she's talking to the jury the whole time. She can say, hey, what do you want to have for lunch? Things like that. Yes, it's just the nature of her communications and if those communications were harmless, such as what, what do you want for lunch? <laughs> right, and explain what it says in, in this particular brief because they're going to use case law to make their argument whether or not it matters whether what she said affected the juror's verdict. And this is what was written in the brief. Even if a juror were to testify that he or she would have reached the same verdict regardless of Miss Hill's tampering, a new trial is required if it was proven that Miss Hill communicated with jurors about the merits of the evidence presented. And the other side is going to say, that's a bunch of horse hockey. So now we're talking about the preponderance of evidence. Defense contends that the burden of proof is shifting because of this being a Court official. If Mr. Murdoch proves, this is from the, the filing, if Mr. Murdoch proves that the clerk of court engaged in surreptitious advocacy on the merits during trial, there is nothing for the state to rebut. A new trial is required. And just to reiterate what you said, the defense team is saying that because it's a court official, the whole thing with the state saying there has to be preponderance of evidence is out the window. They just they don't need a preponderance of evidence. They just need to show that a clerk official said something. And I just want to uh, remind people that once there is a guilty verdict, uh, the preponderance of the evidence shifts from the state to the defense uh, in regards to seeking a new trial. 
Okay, yes. If you're going to overturn it, whatever. Yes. Right. right. So that that's why the burden is on Alec Murdoch, but they're, the defense is arguing that, no, it's not on him because Becky Hill being a court official. Gotcha. Their next uh, thing they address is that they must hold an evidentiary hearing, but one has already been set, so they just say they're going to briefly rebut it, but I don't think we need to cover that because it looks like there will, in fact, be an evidentiary hearing, or at least one is on the calendar. Correct. Let's move to what's in filing about Becky Hill. They do discuss Becky Hill's credibility in their filing. In the filing, it says the state argues attacking Miss Hill's character is an outlandish theory against a dedicated public servant that is, quote, immaterial, impertinent, and scandalous, and she should be struck. That is incorrect. Miss Hill likely is the only witness the state can offer who can directly contradict juror 630's averments of jury tampering, and Miss Hill has offered an affidavit doing exactly that. And we go to new trial exhibit A. Her credibility is the crux of the matter before the court. The purpose of the evidentiary hearing is to allow the court to decide whether it believes the word of Miss Hill more than it believes the sworn testimony of one or more jurors. Anything that impeaches Miss Hill is relevant. And the state's rhetoric about Miss Hill being a, quote, dedicated public servant, unfairly maligned, has not aged well in the two months since the state filed its response, to put it mildly. Miss Hill is alleged to have stolen money, illegally sold access to the courthouse, conspired with her son to conduct illegal wiretaps, and even had her book removed from publication because of her plagiarism. Okay, so let's break down what is happening with Clerk of Court Becky Hill. Uh, first, we have the release of her emails that several news organizations requested. Now, one thing that came to uh, light in the release of her emails were some things to do with plagiarism. So that brings us to this press release that Neil Gordon, the co-author who we've had on the show of the book Behind the Doors of Justice. Here is the press release about these plagiarism revelations. He entitled it Behind the Doors of Justice Ceases Publication Amid Plagiarism Revelations, uh, dated December 26th. The co-authors of the book Behind the Doors of Justice have made the difficult decision to unpublish the book and cease sales after Revelations co-author Becky Hill plagiarized a portion of the book without co-author Neil Gordon's knowledge. Again, this is written by uh, Neil Gordon. Gordon discovered the ethical gaffe while reviewing thousands of pages of Hill's emails released to reporters through the Freedom of Information Act, known as FOIA. Gordon came across an email exchange between Hill, the Carlton County clerk, and a BBC reporter in which the reporter shared a long excerpt from an upcoming article about the Alec Murdoch trial, pages 1644 to 1648. When Gordon compared the article's text to a 12-page book passage in the preface, supposedly written by Hill, he realized she'd lifted the article's text and made it her own. Quote, when I confronted Becky about this, she admitted she plagiarized the passage due to deadline pressure, said Gordon. As a veteran journalist myself, I cannot excuse her behavior, nor can I condone it. Gordon immediately notified the BBC reporter about Hill's actions, and he's been told the media outlet's attorneys are investigating. Gordon's quote, this is blindsight of me. Journalism has been my life's work. My credibility and integrity are paramount to everything I do. I can be associated with anything like plagiarism. We'll no longer partner with Becky Hill on any projects. I'd like to apologize to our readers and publicly to the BBC and the reporter. 
Well, I did check Amazon today, and it is still out there. And what that this is a week after that statement, so it still has not. I don't know if it takes time for Amazon to take things down. I question that because usually in a case like this, Amazon is printing as needed. They're they're not printing five hundred books. But maybe they printed some like in a bulk to to. Mm. I, I again, I don't know, but it is, it is still for sale. Uh, we do have a response from Becky Hill's attorneys. Let's read what she has to say about this. It says, please attribute the following statement to attorneys Justin Bamberg and Will Lewis regarding plagiarism allegations against their client, Collinson County Clerk of Court. Maybe, yeah. Quote, Becky Hill is deeply remorseful regarding an allegation of plagiarism that has recently surfaced from her new book, Behind the Doors of Justice, The Murdoch Murders. The pressures of developing additional content under tight time deadlines resulted in a missile taking material written by a BBC reporter, Holly Honderick, and submitting it to her co-author, Neil Gordon, as if it were her own words. Ms. Hill accepts full responsibility for this unfortunate lapse in judgment and has personally reached out to Ms. Hondrick to express her sincere apologies. The self-published book is only available online through Amazon and Audible, and the decision been made to unpublish the book for the foreseeable future until next steps for the book have been identified. Ms. Hill has great respect for the tireless work journalists do every day and sincerely regrets using Ms. Hondrick's, and I hope I'm saying her name right, as her own. Um, so she's admitting it. Yeah, so that's, this is not a, an allegedly anymore. She, no. she plagiarized. Let's talk about one of our sponsors. It is Factor. You can eat stress-free this spring with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh meal is never frozen and it is chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, uh, including popular options like Calorie Smart, Keto, Protein Plus, and they are ready in just two minutes. What did you have chili the other day? Delicious. And if you want gourmet meals, you can try meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon, shrimp, truffle butter, broccolini, asparagus. So head to factormeals.com slash impact50 and use code impact 5050 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box. That code's impact50 at factormeals.com slash impact50 to get 50% off your first box and 20% off your next box while your subscription is active. Impact 50 at factormeals.com slash impact 50 to get 50% off your first box and 20% off your next box while your subscription is active. On the morning of August 1st, 1966, shots ring out from the observation deck of the clock tower on the University of Texas campus. It marks the infamous beginning of the modern era of mass shootings in America. You're listening to Stop the Killing podcast. Join us as we take you behind the crime scene tape to explain global mass shootings and mass attacks. I'm Sarah Ferris, but more importantly, this is Catherine Schweitz, the former head of the FBI's active shooter program. I spent five years as the FBI's top executive looking for answers to the mass shooting crisis. I've been at the shooting scenes. I've traced heroic acts of bravery. And I've sat silently and listened to the heart-wrenching stories from survivors. Amongst this horror, there is hope. We all hold the key to stop the killing. You just need to know how to unlock the door. Download Stop the Killing and be part of the solution. Search Stop the Killing on Apple, Spotify, and all the usual suspects. And so let's go back to what the defense is saying and uh, their filing they are questioning that her credibility is an issue because of some of these things she's now admitted to plagiarism. 
Um, we also have that they say that she has filed an affidavit back when the the state initially filed their response to these uh, jury tampering allegations. And we know about that so, because we read some of it on the air. Right. But because she has filed this affidavit, does that make her right to plead the fifth? Null and void? Null and void because she's already spoken about it. Mm. It's a good question. We'll have to see uh, how Chief Justice Toll rules on this. So you're saying that it's possible from the legal world that once you comment on something, right, you, you can't suddenly say, but now I'm not commenting. I'm breaking that down in a layman's kind of terms. Yes, yeah. Yes. You, you've already commented on it uh, in a legal filing. Right. Then not, you, you it's not like it. you've just commented to your, right, your neighbor. Right, right. Yeah. You've actually have an affidavit that you have have addressed. Now these, you're saying you've you plead denied, the fifth. And, now you, and then you, you can't say now. Retroactively. Retroactively comment. plead the fifth. If you think back to those, we talked about it at the time, the... Affidavit was very, very carefully worded. It was, it was very much uh, like scripted, a very narrow scope. And so I would think you would need follow-up question, being the layperson here. For instance, she says things like, I did not tell the jury, quote, not to be fooled by evidence presented by Mr. Murdoch's attorneys. Okay, you might not have used those exact words. What else did you do? I did not instruct the jury to, quote, watch him closely. Again, was it the exact words? And was it instruct? Maybe that's the key word. Um, she says, I did not discuss the evidence presented at trial with juror 785. Exactly. What did she discuss? Um, I did not tell, uh, I did not inform juror 75 that everyone needs to be on the same page in quotes. So again, is, does that mean that specifically she didn't use those words? That's why I would think you would need follow-up and again she according to the legal people we talked to you can't plead the fifth after you just filed this official affidavit and something else that they mention in this brief is uh to quote for example emails released to journalists in response to FOIA requests show that miss hill was sending emails directly to prosecutors and law enforcement witnesses for the state during the trial for the merits of testimony from the defense witnesses under examination at the moment so she sent emails to the state and law enforcement, but did not send emails to the defense. So they're showing bias. That's what this is uh, contending. And let's move on to an article from John Monk with the state paper. And he has a couple of attorneys uh, quoted about this situation. Jay Bender, who was the media liaison for the Murdoch trial and is also an attorney. When he asked about these uh, plagiarism, he says it's a separate issue and that they occurred at different times. This was not something that occurred during the trial. And he is quoted as saying, it is irrelevant to the issue before the court. That was his opinion on it. We also have Joe McCullough, who we've had on our show a few times, and he represents two of the uh, jurors. Uh, he says, plagiarism is not really a crime, so I don't know under the rules of evidence if it would be pertinent to an impeachment discrediting basis. Um, he goes on to say that the judge is going to be laser focused on whether there were communications between any court official and any member of the jury. And if there was, did it interfere with or in any way pollute the neutrality of the jury? In that statement, at least, and we'll have him on soon, saying the plagiarism thing, and he also agrees with Bender that it, it, it does not affect 
whether this happened or not or whether the, what the ruling will be or anything like that? Well, it's possible that Judge Toll may decide that these allegations and uh, also the ethics charges that she's facing, uh, whether she was writing a book or moving funds or using federal funds for the, this child support stuff, they, they have nothing to do with this ethics investigation. And whether she is, well, first of all, she hasn't been found guilty on the, but, the uh, some of those. And in this filing, we obviously know that uh, the defense is going on record saying, uh, no, we think this is an issue. We think this is relevant. Um, her her credibility, because why are we going to believe what she says versus what a juror says a if juror she did. is, yeah. you, know, uh, you know, not. Uh, They're saying there's some shady stuff around her. Right. Uh, we also hear from Eric Bland in this article who is representing four of the jurors. And he says that if Becky Hill was his client, uh, he may not allow her to take the stand. Um, he is also quoted as saying, if she takes the fifth, there is an adverse inference in the legal term, meaning a negative conclusion can be assumed about what her testimony might have been. And I'm not sure if that's accurate because a negative inference uh, does not apply to criminal proceedings. I think it's only civil. And the way I understand it is in a criminal proceeding, the judge would even say, this person pleading the fifth does not in any way, I don't know how he'd officially affirm, but like, this doesn't yes. mean negative. Thing. He even informs the jury to not take a negative attachment to that. Right, because in, in that case, uh, criminal defense attorneys would probably bring people in all the time and say, um, you know, was that your gun? Uh, I, plead I plead the fifth. And then that's a negative. And they're like, oh, then it must it be must his. Be. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. He said, oh, right, right, right. So yes. So good, good uh, point there, Seton. Let's talk about how the defense is hoping uh, this evidentiary hearing will look. Before we do that, I'm going to tell you, you're going to hear the in-camera mentioned, right? And in-camera, the definition is in private, in particular taking place in the private chambers of a judge with the press and public excluded. It's a bit confusing sometimes because in-camera sounds like on-camera. On-camera, but it's But different. it's complete opposite. <laughs> I think what they're saying is they want these just in front of the judge. Just in-camera, or in-camera, Latin for in a chamber. Yes. So... In the uh, pre-hearing brief by the defense, that would be letter G, jurors and Judge Newman, if necessary, should be examined in camera by the court, but other witnesses should be examined by counsel in open court. Right. And so by the court would be uh, Chief Justice Toll conducting the questioning. Mm -hmm. In chambers. So, and I think that we're going to find that everybody involved is pretty much in lockstep with, at least both sides, in lockstep with putting the jurors in chambers. But there would be a publicly available transcript. That's transcript. what they're suggesting. But all the other witnesses would be in public. Open court, yes. Yep. And I think the question that they really want to tackle is whether communication occurred, and if so, the context and the substance. Now, we also have, within this filing... A line that says counsel for non-parties should not be permitted to participate in these proceedings, which is about attorney Eric Bland. They quote some of the things that he has said on his podcast. He has requested to participate in the proceedings as counsel for certain jurors who may be called to testify as witnesses. Mr. Murdoch objects to Mr. Bland's request. This is a criminal proceeding brought by the state against the defendant. Mr. Bland seeks a 
level of non-party participation beyond even the rights afforded victims under certain law, blah, 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 blah. And uh, the jurors he represents are not crime victims. In discussing the request in the media, Mr. Bland stated on his podcast that Justice Toll, the newly assigned presiding judge in this matter, quote, has friends sometimes to reward and enemies to punish, and quote, I worry about what procedures are going to be put in place. The fact that there was a status conference, and you know, I represent four jurors, and I wasn't even told of the status conference, and I believe that my jurors have the right to legal representation in any type of proceeding dealing with Alec Murdoch's verdicts, where they're going to have their verdicts questioned. So he stated interest in the to be there when all these things are happening, and they're saying, no, that, that, that's not the way it works. Well, and in this filing, they say that this violates uh, Mr. Murdoch's 14th Amendment rights, but... I question whether they were just trying to let Chief Justice Toll know uh, what Bland was saying. Let's move to the state's pre-hearing brief in the opposition to defense motion for a new trial. What uh, jumps out at you first? I guess the, the first one being the burden of proof. Yeah, they're, they're saying it still rests with uh, Murdoch. And the way they word it is, Murdoch must carry the burden of proving both that an improper contact occurred with the jury and that he was actually prejudiced thereby. Right. So that's that whole thing of even if the this improper conduct did occur, it, it would have had to change the outcome. Right. Or change at least the, one of the jurors' minds. Uh, then they also talk about, they try to pitch that evidentiary hearing is unnecessary, but it looks like that's happening. It does look like it's happening, but in uh, their response, they say not a single juror who actually deliberated in the case indicates that their deliberations or verdict was in any way affected by the improper contacts alleged. Uh, the jurors were polled individually and affirmed their verdicts on the record. When we have told you about that ad nauseum, that the defense is saying doesn't matter whether they say they were influenced or not. If it happened, that's enough. Exactly. Then they talk about uh, judicially conducted limited questioning. Should the court deem it evidentiary hearing necessary, which it looks like they're happening, the procedure should be judicially guided and the scope of uh, relevant evidence is limited. These are the questions that they want to ask the jury. It said, on March 2nd, 2023, did you answer when polled that your verdict was guilty on each of the charges? That's the first question they want asked. And the second was... As you were instructed to do so by Judge Newman, was your verdict on March 2nd, 2023, based solely on the testimony, evidence, law, and arguments of counsel presented at trial? The states want only those two questions asked. And do they say if those, the only 12 jurors, if they say yes and yes, then it's over with. They don't even have evidence you're hearing. But that doesn't include the alternate or the egg juror that was kicked off. So if it seems like we spend a lot more time on the defense, it's probably because there was 21 or 22 pages in their filing and there's seven pages by the state. Uh, we're not trying to show any, and we could just be repeating and rehashing because there's really, there's just two, as we see it, two big issues. Yep. The first one is Becky Hill's credibility and how that may or may not influence uh, this evidentiary hearing. And whether or not she can plead the fifth. Yep. That's all kind of one. And then the second big question, which is very obvious by these filings, 
Right. So we have if this uh, improper communication happened between Becky Hill and jurors, uh, is that enough? Or did that communication have to in some way influence the outcome of uh, the trial, the guilty verdict? I think that is even bigger than the Becky Hill credibility thing. I really think that's what it can come down to, to, to justice toll. Whether she goes, a court official says something improper, that's enough. New trial. Or she goes with, if a court official says something, you better prove that it swayed a juror's decision. We also have to prove that these communications happened Happened. and were they improper. Right. Exactly. And and there's more on Becky Hill. Uh, Fitz News has an article about... I guess, phone shenanigans, if you will, (laughs) uh, taking place with not only Becky Hill, but Becky Hill's son, who's been accused of wiretapping another government employee. And the Fitz News article is in great detail. You can read it over there. But basically, there was a situation where there are phones possibly missing, six cell phones between Becky Hill and her son. Two of them have been allegedly destroyed. Two of them were on a factory reset. One was reportedly missing, and one which investigators have in their possession, but it's not the device they sought via the subpoena. And uh, Fitz News breaks on the timeline of how Becky's son was getting rid of phones and changing phones to different lines, allegedly, and, and Becky Hill was doing the same. And the phone that Becky used during the Murdoch trial is a different one they were able to get a hold of. They go into great detail on that. Uh, you can go to Fitz News and find out more. And there are possible implications, if this is true, of uh, obstruction of justice. I mean, that they were intentionally getting rid of phones. I think what they said at one point in the article that Jeffrey Hill disposed of one phone in a dumpster after he knew the walls were closing in. And how often do people, like, throw away phones, right? A whole phone. I mean, I don't. And we don't know where Becky Hill's phone. Becky Hill had a Samsung phone, which was, uh, she traded in for an iPhone and uh, that's what SLED was seeking to find, but that phone is, you know, missing. And some of these phones are government phones, which is even more interesting. Well, and another thing that they say in this article, uh, to quote, it says, even more problematic, we have received troubling reports that SLED agents and officials sought at various points during the investigation to downplay any possible connection between Jeffrey Hill's eavesdropping of Utsi and ethics investigation into Hill. Before we wrap, a couple of comments. We have one that I thought was funny to read just because you got a similar one last week. Uh, Seton, please leave. Your constant harping (laughs) on being biased is inaccurate and tiresome. You seem to love taking cheap shots at two journalists in particular. Uh, Don't do that. It's unprofessional and obvious. Intelligent people should always be questioning and not seeking to integrate themselves with the fringe element for ratings. I have no idea what that means. I don't either. We have not talked about other journalists in a, in a negative way. Run for the hills, Matt. Yeah! I, I know you thought about that. That's because last week it was telling you to run for the hills. I know, I know. And it was funny because we got a lot of uh, criticism after we interviewed Neil Gordon that we were too tough on Becky Hill. Very next episode, we went through Becky Hill's response to the ethics complaint, and then we got... We were too easy on Becky Hill. We are not in one camp or the other. We are on the side of presenting information and letting y'all make up your own minds. And 
we still appreciate it. We're, we're, we're not at least a bit offended by your comments and Oh, reviews. yeah. And we got, I got, someone had reached out to me that I, uh, we misspoke and instead of the kennel video, we called it the snap or Snapchat video. So sometimes we do make mistakes yeah. and we appreciate it. Oh, the Snapchat you. was the tree one. Right. And the kennel, and video. the kennel videos was Paul talking to his friends. On his so, phone. On his phone. So, yes, we do make mistakes along the way and we are happy for you to point them out. Love it, and we are grateful. We would hope that you'd rate and share the episode, make a comment, reach out to us an Impact of Influence podcast page for the Evergreen Podcast Company, and we'll talk soon, friend. From DNA testing to the Dixie Mafia, Crime Capsule brings you new stories of true crime in American history. I'm your host, Benjamin Morris. Join us for exclusive interviews with authors from Arcadia Publishing, writing the hottest books on the most chilling stories of our country's past. You can find us wherever you get your favorite podcasts or on evergreenpodcasts.com. Crime Capsule. History so interesting, it's criminal. My name is Bill Huffman, and I am a former Cleveland News producer, and I am now the host of the podcast, Who Killed?, I began the show focusing on the unsolved murder of Amy Mihaljevic, and now each week I explore a different case with a focus on some of the victims who don't get the attention they deserve. I have a deep catalog of over 225 episodes, so there is a guarantee there will be something for you. Who Killed is an Evergreen Podcast, Killer Podcasts, and Slow Burn Media production. Subscribe today wherever you get your favorite shows.